Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast, our continuing History 102 session, Cold War, from 1945 to 1989, really even to 1991. The hard rains are going to fall. It's a nuclear rain. So what is the Cold War? The Cold War is an ideological conflict between two sides who fear each other, but without direct military conflict. The USSR, the Soviet Union, feared Western European invasion of the Soviet Union to destroy communism, and the USA feared Soviet attempts to help overthrow democratic socialist capitalism by using disaffected citizens, liberals, unions, black folk, Jews, the unemployed. But, as we'll see, both sides understood they couldn't really fight each other. The U.S. Army could not overrun Eastern Europe, much less Russia and Ukraine. The Soviet Union would be nuked if it tried to overrun Western Europe. So what the Cold War was, was a 50-year-long stalemate that threatened to murder everybody on Earth. The hydrogen bomb invented in the 50s made everything even worse because the hydrogen bomb was even more powerful than the atomic bomb. You'll see movies from like the late 40s and the 50s that talk about you can win an atomic war. You could win a nuclear exchange. With the invention of the hydrogen bomb, essentially it's over. War could now mean the death of human civilization. You couldn't win a nuclear war. I mean, if you take a look at our video on the left, there's the mushroom cloud formed by the largest bomb ever uh, tested, the Tsar bomb in the Soviet Union. But take a look at War Games, a movie from my childhood where a computer simulation is being run on uh, who can win a nuclear exchange, and the answer is winner, none. This is what's called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which... It is not lost on the comedians that mutually assured destruction, which was given the acronym that this is what would happen, became mad because it's mad to get into a nuclear war. And so movies like Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb play on this. The idea that nuclear war, the nuclear stalemate, the, the Cold War itself was mad, M-A-D. So let's talk about what it would happen if the Tsar bomb, the largest bomb that ever uh, was tested, went off in Center City, Philly. Went off in the middle of Philadelphia. Well, if you take a look on the left, you'd see that thermal radiation burns would go out to Delaware and almost to the shore. There would be tornado effects out into uh, Deptford. If you take a look on our right, you'd have the nuclear explosion essentially eliminating all of Center City, Philly. Um, and most of, and then you'd have a fireball. So you'd have the nuclear bomb itself go off, and then you had the fireball that came out of it. Uh, that would wipe out the rest of Center City, City Philadelphia, all the way down to the Walt Whitman Bridge. And almost all of Camden, northern Camden. And then beyond that, the winds and the pressure 
would be so high that essentially it would knock all wood structures down, that's most of your housing, and light it on fire. And that would be nearly 100% fatalities. That's Collinswood. That's Gloucester. So you're talking the destruction of 2.3 million deaths, most of the all of Philadelphia, most of the close suburbs, 1.6 million injured. Now notice the deaths are higher than the injured. Because if you're in a nuclear explosion, it's more likely to kill you than just to hurt you. And an unknown amount of cancers, especially once the winds, the jet stream picks it up and moves it to the east. Uh, all of North Jersey, all of the shore, New York, Hartford, maybe even Rhode Island might have nuclear fallout that would cause cancer. So it'd be an unknown amount of cancers. So you could see, you, let's go back for a second. You could see that a nuclear bomb going off in a major city is just an utter devastating effect. It just cannot happen. So then what is the Cold War? Well, the Cold War is competition by other means. Since you can't nuke each other, and the, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis will prove this, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, the Cold War from 1965 to 1989, you have to compete by other means. And so we'll talk about one of the first and famous ones is the kitchen debate in the World's Fair of 1959. Khrushchev and Richard Nixon, now Richard Nixon at the time was known as a hardcore cold warrior, as they were called, called. you know, and he was vice president at the time. Nikita Khrushchev, a hero in the Second World War, was the, was the successor to Stalin. And they met at the World's Fair in 1959. And they had a debate about a display of the American kitchen. And there's a picture of it here. And so while there people are, you know, all the translators and they're hanger-ons and spies and, all, are, and the Secret Service are all there. These two have a discussion. And the discussion isn't like, it's pleasant, but it's also war at the same time. And it's about the American technological superiority. Nixon's like, look at our washing machines. Look at our dishwashers. Look at, our, look at all of the stuff that makes life for our women better. Look at all of the technology. Do you have that technology? Khrushchev, of course, knows he doesn't have that technology. He knows... It's only the richest of families might have this kind of technology. Hardly the ordinary person has it. They're still washing their clothes mostly by hand. And so he looks at this and scoffs and goes, ha, ha, ha. Our women are too tough to need these machines. They don't need it. It's making your women soft. Oh, with their soft hands, they can't really match Soviet grit and Soviet spirit. Now, what I love about this is the idea of American technology superiority, which was clear in the kitchen, the ordinary person's home. Now, it's not the ordinary person. It's a wealthy person, not rich, but the upper middle class white person living in the suburbs. That their home had this technology that only the richest might have in the Soviet Union. And they didn't want people to know they had it because, remember, the Soviet Union was communist. People are supposed to live pretty close to each other. 
And so there's this idea that the Soviets, without the technology, have to grind it out. They're tougher. This is an idea that goes back as to Cyrus. When, having conquered the Persian Empire, his nobility said, hey, look at all these cities the Babylonians have. Can't we live there? It would be nice. We'd have such nice living. And Cyrus turns to them and goes, hard living makes for hard men. Do you want to be conquered? And so this is, this is the same fight. 3,000 years later, we're still having the same, does technology make you soft? Or is it better to live a hard life? Right? Elbow grease. Now what I love about that is our picture down below is Rocky IV. And in Rocky IV, it's the Soviets that have super technology and all the drugs and all the, the technology and they monitor everything. And what does, how does Rocky train? He lifts woods in Siberia. He goes to a farm in the snow and he runs through 10 feet high snow drifts. Like, it's the exact, Rocky Four is the exact opposite of the reality. In reality, Rocky would have all the technology. The Soviets didn't have it. So it's, it's a funny thing that in the 50s, Nixon is extolling American technology, and in the 80s, they're hiding it. The space race forces the invest, investing in money and education and technology into these things. There's an investment in new future technologies. And in the education, we get community colleges. We get Cannon County College out of it. The idea was we, the space race, forced um, countries to, to think they needed educated workforces, that the world wasn't going to work by industrialization anymore. You now needed intelligence. So the more people who are educated, highly educated, the better. This is the USSR with Sputnik, the first satellite launched in space, and Yuri Gagarin, a true hero, the first man launched into space. Versus Apollo 11 from the United States, which is the first men to set foot on the moon. So the USA could catch up. It had more money. Yes, it was behind on satellites. Yes, it, be, it was behind on men going into space. But it could get to the moon. And it's kind of interesting that the space race kind of ends with the moon. There's no, let's go to Mars. It doesn't keep going. It's not like a Nike commercial where you the races get longer. It's like it got to the moon and the Soviets went, all right, we got other things to do. And one of those things is the Olympics. The Olympics becomes this competition of systems, more than people. This is the USA-Soviet Union basketball game in the 70s. This is especially the uh, which the Americans will lose, or the Americans win ice hockey in 1980. It's professional training in the Soviet system. The Soviet system had professionalized training. They went and found the best of the best to be good at these things and then train them in huge schools versus the amateur, quote-unquote, but elite, because these were not poor people who were doing these jobs. These are elite people who could afford to take years off to train individuals. So it's this professional training system versus the 
individual American. Now, the amateur elite individual is the American system, the professional training system with all the schools, and that's the communist system. And then you get movies like Top Gun, Rocky IV, Iron Eagle. You know, these these movies out of the 80s where it's the American versus either a Soviet or a Soviet stand-in, the Iranians, for example, or some nondescript Middle Eastern country. I, it's the Iranians. So you have this debate. The Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963 proved these 13 days in October proved that the competition was too dangerous. That we came very close to having a full-on nuclear exchange over Cuba. The USSR and United States almost came into direct conflict, and the idea was that cannot happen. So what started it was proxy wars. The U.S. and the USSR would fight without fighting, which meant each side flooded allies with weapons and technology. The U.S. entered the Vietnam Civil War to stop the Soviet-backed North Vietnam from conquering South Vietnam. So what did the Soviets do? Give more money, more technology, more weapons to North Vietnam. So American bombers were bombing at will North Vietnam. So what did the Soviets do? Give them anti-aircraft guns and missiles. That's how John McCain got shot down. He didn't get shot down by a Vietnamese anti-aircraft weapon. He got shot down by a Soviet one worked by Vietnamese trained by Soviet advisors. This is the Arab and Israeli wars. The United States backed the Israelis, which meant all the Arab states that wanted to destroy Israel were backed by the Soviet Union. India versus Pakistan. Now, this one's a weird one because it's the Soviets who will back the democracy of India and the United States that will back Pakistan. That happened because India, in breaking apart, and we'll talk about this, but in the, the, the partition, remember, the British owned India, the Indian Raj, the, the South Asia. The United States was allied with Britain. And so the first thing Indian politicians did was go to the Soviets so that they would be independent of Britain and the, and the Americans. And that will continue for a while. It's, a, it's one of the stranger relationships, but it means it always, remember, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So as long as the Indian um, part of South Asia, the Indian state, didn't want to be controlled culturally or physically again by the British, they could find an ally with the Soviets. India also will have several battles with China, and after 1956... There's a falling out between the two communist countries, between the Soviet Union and China. And so the Soviets had an additional reason to be friendly to democratic India. So it's, a, it's an interesting one. Meanwhile, Pakistan falls into military dictatorship and the United States will back it in its, in its defeats multiple times against India. It's multiple defeats. Uh, you get Central African civil wars, the Congo, which will fall apart, Ethiopia versus Eritrea, Sudan, the north versus the south. 
in the 70s and the 80s, you have some Central American civil wars that the Sandinistas are, quote, communist, as Colombia as well. And the, the idea is one side gives them, gives them money and technology and advice, and the other side's the government, and they get technology and advice from the other side. So every war could turn to so if you're, you're no matter what war it was if you had a civil war each side could turn to the US or the USSR so they're constantly United States and the USSR are constantly fighting everywhere and kind of the last if the 60s was about US and Vietnam the 80s will be about the Soviet Union and Afghanistan and there's Charlie Wilson's war there's a movie and a book but there's plenty of stories about the United States just flooding Afghanistan and Pakistan with lots of weapons in order to murder Soviet soldiers. But Americans didn't go. Well, Amer there are Americans there, the special forces, they're, they're spies. But the idea was American troops didn't go to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. That all of these proxy wars were the U.S. and the USSR could not directly fight each other. But, as part of that, they were allowed to dominate their own zones without interference. So the USSR crushes freedom movements, de democratic movements in East Germany, in Hungary, and most famously in 1968 in Prague, what's called the Prague Spring. Um, the Soviet leaders basically said in the late 60s, well, we can reform. You could have your own kind of communism, quote-unquote. And the leaders in Prague said, okay, great, we're going to... Do this. We're going to have like Western style socialism. It's going to be great. And the Soviets went, yeah, no, 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 no. And so there's this, what's this Prague Spring, this spring where Prague was independent, where Czechoslovakia was independent of the Soviet Union, and then it's crushed by a Soviet invasion. And the United States will not lift a finger to help them. It was the Soviet zone. It's theirs. Meanwhile, the U.S. will interfere in elections in Italy, in France, to make sure communist parties don't win. It will overthrow the Iranian and Chilean presidents. This is essentially the Cuban exception. The idea was Cuba was the American zone, and the Soviets stepped into it and nearly caused a gigantic war. So it's okay. There's going to be zones that we, we are going to stay a part of. That's your zone. This is my zone. And we can fight with through proxies in the in the in between zones, but I get Western Europe, you get Eastern Europe, I get most of Central America and especially Mexico, you get Central Asia and Mongolia, and um, China gets North Korea. There's the China just got North Korea, you know. It was it was originally a Soviet zone. It becomes a Chinese one. It's too far away from Moscow. It's too hard for the Soviets to to deal with. And the the leaders in North Korea liked Mao better. You know, North Korea and China have a thousand year long relationship. Well, two thousand year long relationship, really. And so it makes total sense that China gets North Korea. So what are the results of the Cold War? Well, you have Europe is divided. 
you have no movement between east and west. The Berlin Wall is kind of the famous reflection of that. There's not much trade. I mean, trade never ends, but there's just not much of it. And there's not much information. There was like the it was called the Iron Curtain for a reason. It was that people, money, and information can't go east and west. Europe gets rebuilt. Western Europe is part of a free trade, democratic, socialist, capitalist system. Eastern Europe is occupied and economically dependent on the USSR. So you can imagine which side did better. You know, Bul Bulgaria did worse than France. Romania did worse than Northern Italy. Human rights become supported by the United States, including civil rights, women's rights, and gay rights all expand. Because the USSR keeps pointing out how freedom, quote-unquote, doesn't apply to minorities in the United States. The U.S. talks about freedom, and then they go, well, look at how you treat your black folk. And the United States is like, son of a... And this is why in the 50s, first Eisenhower, and then Kennedy, and especially then Johnson, are all fairly pro-civil rights as presidents, even though one's a Republican and two are, the other two are Democrats, because the USSR had a point. Here was this here was this hypocrisy. Oh, you talk about freedom, but only for white people. It's like, ah, son of a... They're right, they're right. And so you get the U.S. integrating the army in 48, schools after Brown versus Board of Ed, and the South by the federal government. The federal government sent troops to Little Rock to integrate schools. But you also get militarism and massive nuclear arsenals that threaten every place on the globe, especially Europe. Everybody knew that if the U.S. and the USSR got into a war, Europe was going to be leveled. So there's this collective trauma of living through the wars, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and the threat of nuclear annihilation, which is really brought home by Chernobyl, which not only threatened to poison a good part of Belarus and Ukraine, but through the winds, poisoned Europe as well. And so people pre prepared for it like school shootings today. As a, as a kid in the late 70s and the 80s, I hid under desks. Like I get, I get boomers who are like, you know, when I was a kid, we had to hide under desks. I'm like, dude, in the 80s, I had to too. Like, I don't know what world you thought happened when, like, your children were children, but they lived through the same trauma. Like, I hid under desks, I hid under, behind the walls, and then we went into the basement for the fallout shelter, which was lined with lead, which God knows how poisonous that was. Everything had asbestos in it and lead in it to help protect you. So God knows what our exers, what our cancer rate's going to be in, in 25 years, in 30 years, when we're, when we're senior citizens. But it's like preparing for school shootings today. The very act of preparing is traumatizing to the kids. There's um, a Blooms County. There's in our. If you're taking a look at the video, there's our picture of the explosion that happened at Chernobyl that let loose all of this cancerous radiation. And there's a comic that I found that I from Bloom County. I was, I was a big Bloom County fan when I was a kid, and from the first book, you know. There's 
Everybody, please turn to chapter one, says the teacher. And the guy comes in from the government and says, pardon me, may I have a word with the children, please? I'm from the Bloom County nuclear power plant down the road. We seem to be having a teensy problem with the reactor core. The core? Yeah, I'm afraid it melted. Whoosh, disappeared right into the ground. And she, the teacher's out. Everybody out. Run away. Oh, kids, you should have seen it. Looked like a big old glowing gopher. One of the characters goes to the animals of the forest, Milo's Meadow, and goes, Hi, I thought someone ought to let you guys in on this. Oh, 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 what? What? What is it, Milo? Uh, well, I don't want to alarm anybody, but we had a teeny radioactive uh, steam released into the air from the nuclear power plant over the hill. Oh, my. On behalf of my species, I'd like to apologize for this little faux pas. Oh, sure. Um, can you guys, like, stop breathing until, say, I don't know, Tuesday? Oh, my. Tuesday? That's what we were dealing with. Nuclear accidents might murder everybody in the area. Nuclear war would murder everybody. I remember asking my father one time because we lived on the outskirts. We lived in outside of New York City. Um, what would we do if there's a nuclear war? And my father said, we'll go to the roof and watch. I'm like, well, that sounds kind of crazy. He's like, well, you can't go. All the highways will be jammed with people, so you can't escape. You can't go through New York escape into America and you can't all the highways will be backed up trying to get out of New York so there's nowhere to go and even if you survived you're just going to die of cancer so you might as well watch it at least get a light show out of it like that's the nihilism we were talking about so that we grew up in that Xers grew up in that 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 <coughs> boomers did too. To be fair, let's be fair. This is a this is a this is a the Cold War was an invention of the World War II generation, and boomers suffered through it too. So what we get is poverty and pollution in Eastern Europe. They're locked out of world trade. They are the USSR's dumping zone, both for goods but also for pollution. Like the USR Soviet Union didn't want to dump all their wastes inside Mother Russia. So what do they do? They dumped it in Poland, Romania, Bulgaria. But in the United States, you get this obsession with freedom, quote. Now, I put quotes around it because what we mean by freedom is very different by who's saying the words freedom. And individualism, quote, 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 because what they mean by individualism, my right to do what I want, to be who I am, is limited depending on who it is. So he's like, we are all individuals, except for you gay people. We have the freedom to do what we want, except for you black people. And so you put quotes around it because it was never really freedom. It was never really individualism. They were catchphrases. They were always hypocritical because there were always limits. They didn't apply to all people. So the United States is talking about freedom and individualism while at the same time having the highest poverty, lowest literacy, worst social programs, lowest life expectancy in the industrialized world because it rejected, quote, socialism after 1964, that the government should help people. But it also spent more on the military than the next 10 countries combined. So... We had the ability to nuke more people, but our people were also living less. At some points, maybe a decade less 
than Europeans were. I mean, I don't... I mean, there is... I, we should mention it here. There was a very famous faux pas that President Trump did. And it's, you know, you may go, oh... You know, if you don't like President Trump, you'll be like, oh, well, he did many. And it's like, no, 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 very one specific. And it's it's a faux pas. It's because he told the truth and it got out. It was it was in a cabinet meeting or a meeting with the Democrats. I don't really remember the scene, but it's he asked a question. Why are we getting all of this immigration from shithole countries, from shitty countries? Why are we getting all these poor people from and and of course it was black people, right? From is black people and brown people. Why are we getting all these Mexicans? Why are we getting all these Central Americans? Why are we getting all these Haitians? Why are we getting all these Africans? Right? Why aren't we getting Europeans anymore? We used to get white people. And the faux pas was, oh, he's calling the immigrants these other countries shitty countries. But lots of people call them shitty countries. None of you want to live in Haiti. It's a poor country. The Haitians want to move here because it's a poor country. But that's where this part comes in. Because because of the Cold War, because of all of that spending on the military, because of that obsession with the word socialist and government intervention in the economy, the U.S. didn't have the same programs that Europe has. So in Europe, you get government-funded education in college. You get government-funded childcare. You get government-funded vacations. You get August off. Swedes get August off. Like, I've lived in Sweden, and to get somebody on the phone, I needed to get back to the United States. To get on a Saturday, I had to call New York to get an actual person on the phone from the airline. I had to call New York. I called Stockholm. They're like, we're closed till Monday. And that's true. I was in Uppsala. And from Friday at 3 p.m. till Sunday, uh, at Sunday, at Monday at 10 a.m., you could not find a Swede in the third largest city in Sweden. Most of the shops were closed. The Swedes went to holiday. They went into the countryside. They're like, why should I work? It's August. It's beautiful. We take vacation. So Europe closes down for August. Meanwhile, Americans work and work and work and work and work for not much more money. That's the thing. As you go, oh, well, Sweden has such high taxes. It's actually not that much more. Because the reason why is what they pay in taxes, we end up paying in fees. We end up having to pay individually. So you go, oh, well, they have high taxes. Yeah, but they have free they have government funded it's not free it's government funded childcare our childcare is 400 bucks per child per week okay so you save down the taxes but it actually costs you more because the childcare is more expensive because you have to pay for it yourself and so the interesting part of what president trump talked about was why are we getting why can't we get europeans to come here and the answer is because we are the shithole country to europe why would they want to? Why, if you're French, why would you want to move to America? If you're Italian, why would you want to move to America? Like, what is the advantage? Freedom? They have it. 
time off, we don't have it. Healthcare, unless you're rich, our healthcare is vastly expensive and not open to you unless you're in a certain job. So why would you move? Like, America is now the shithole country of Europe. And this is when liberals say after, like, Republicans win an election, oh, I'm going to move to Canada. It's like the Canadians don't want you. Like, the Canadians actually don't want Americans to move to Canada. Despite it being a massive country that needs more people, they don't want liberal Americans moving there. Because liberal Americans moving there are going to want Canadian jobs, high-end, high-paying, $100,000-a-year jobs. That's not what the Canadian economy needs. They need extra high-end millionaires who will build businesses, and they need ordinary workers. You know, people to clean up hotel rooms, which Americans, the American liberals moving to Canada to escape Republicans, aren't going to want to do with their, with their education so it's a, it's this funny stalemate that's going on. So we're going to talk about American conservatism later, but it's funny you you get you know conservative people I know are like I'm going to move too, and you're like where? There's only Russia. There's no place else with as good of a as good of a standard of living that is as conservative. Like I'm going to move to Canada. Yet yeah, really. You're really going to move to Canada? It's like way more liberal than here. Like, it's way more liberal than like Vermont. So, like, you basically have Russia. That's your choice if you're conservative. So, this is the place where we are. And it, it was this interesting faux pas, but it's a misunderstanding. It's an understandable thing of like, we used to get immigrants from Europe. Well, those Euro those immigrants, my grandfather was poor. My grandfather came at the age of seven with nothing. Literally nothing. Not even his family. He got off a boat and he was by himself in New York. Could you imagine that, being seven and being in New York, not speaking the language and all on your own? Like, that's crazy. Like, no wonder my that generation was, was traumatized. But they came because well, my, my grandfather came from Central Italy, but the places he came from had nothing. They were poor. And so America offered a, a means of progression. And what happened, my, my grandfather eventually grew up. He got a job in the, in the um, port of New York. My father went to school, got a master's degree, became a teacher. I got a PhD and am now a college professor. Like, I am the immigrant success story. Where my grandfather started with nothing and each generation improved. And that is a great conservative victory story. Like, that's the story conservatives will tell about America. You work hard and each generation gets better. Congratulations. It's exactly that. It's true. But in the meantime, Europe got wealthy, European lives got better, they got faster trains. They got more health care because they didn't have to spend the money on the military. And so European life became more civilized. Whereas in 1920, American life had more opportunity. Now it's way better to be a European living in Europe. So 
So, also, the 60s, because of the space race, because of this Cold War, you got cheap 1960s, 1970s, public education. You got the investment in community colleges, state universities. You have massive investment in research, in diseases, and technology, and inventions. You get the computer and then the internet age. All of that was government-funded. All of it. All of it came out of government-funded research. You get free trade. So you could sell goods anywhere, and anyone can sell goods to you. And you get decolonization, which allowed the world to get richer. People got richer, and the world got freer. You got awesome music and art and movies and culture, all within the confines of the Cold War. Even if some of it had this machoism, this nationalism, and this militarism. You got Bob Dylan, who gave us the quote at the start of our, our show. We got The Clash, right? London Calling is probably the best Cold War album out there. You got science fiction novels from Isaac Asinoff to the cyberpunk trend. You got James Bond and the Hunt for October. You got chess. One time, Americans are going to care about chess. Bobby Fischer versus Spassky. Because it wasn't just an American and a Soviet. It was America versus the Soviets. And that's going to be Doctor Who. That's going to be uh, Rocky IV. You got Barishnikov, the beauty of Barishnikov who also fled the Soviet Union. You got U2's albums, their music from war to Joshua Tree. And you got spring scenes born in the USA. You've got all of Doctor Who's entire of war from the doctor who is representing liberal democracy and its goodness, but also its violence. He needs a companion to save him, to keep him right, because the doctor by himself is dangerous. You get the master who represents fascism. He wants to control everything. You got the Daleks who are atomic militarism. They want to exterminate everything. And you could say, oh, the Daleks are also fascism. That's true, too. And the Cybermen who represent communism because they're going to make everybody communist. They're going to make everybody Cybermen. Think about, the, think about Peter Gabriel's career. He goes from singing a song, Games Without Frontiers, in the 80s, which is about nationalist competition. To Pixar picking Gabriel to sing a song from Wally about reconstructing civilization. From the destruction he sings about happening in Games Without Frontiers. Like, that's crazy. And is totally, and people did not, and do not be one of those people who are like, oh, it's just an accident. No, it's totally not. They totally picked Peter Gabriel to sing a song about recovering civilization because he sang songs about the death of civilization. You also got massive parental swings. This is why you never call me a boomer. I am an Xer, my friend, and our, us Xers have our own problems. But you get massive, but also the boomers have problems. Because you have massive parental swings from laissez-faire, be home by six. You get a lot of older people, Xers included in this, but you get... Boomers are like, you know, you used to be able to send your kids out and just not care where they were. And I was one of those kids. You're like, be home by six. Okay, mom. Right? That's the 1960s. By the 1990s, you have helicopter parents. You can't do anything anymore. I'll get parents. Like, this is the 2000s, but I'll have parents who come to see me and be like, I want to talk about my son and how he's doing in college. And I'm like, I can't. He's 25 years old. I can't do it. I, I am happy to talk to him. And 
do whatever he wants to do, but I can't talk to you. You can't do his work. I've had parents who come and say, you know, your tests are too hard for me to do. And I'm like, you're not supposed to be doing them. So we went from a laissez-faire in the 60s, like, go out and just do things. You know? And that happened in, like, my, in the 80s. It changed. You know? It was the idea that we might all be dead one day. So who cares about the rules so much? So you had relaxed attitudes about teen sex and drugs and spirituality that had violent swings in the 80s and 90s. D&D went from a cool game of you hanging out and playing with your friends to like Satan worshiping and, you know, destroying the books in the 80s. As female education became important, the male working class jobs and male working class jobs disappeared. Teen pregnancy changed from the unfortunate. This is Springsteen's The River. You get married. You have your dreams deferred. Nobody's happy in the river that you have teen pregnancy. But it wasn't the worst thing in the world. You could survive it. You did what you had to do. An uncle got you a job in the factory. You know, she got a part-time job at the the uh, local supermarket. And you, you got married and you weren't happy. You didn't have a happy marriage, but you had a marriage. To Madonna's, Popper Don't Preach. I'm keeping the baby. So 10 years later, it's I could be a single mom. And dad... I know I did wrong, but I can be a single mom on this. I'm keeping the baby. To Jessica Simpson's promise ring, promising her dad she wasn't going to have sex. So it went from a thing that was acceptable but unfortunate to a thing that was kind of disastrous but you could survive to a thing you shouldn't do at all. That female virginity became much more important, especially teen virginity. Why? Because getting pregnant would wreck your entire life. That teen pregnancy could destroy your college, your future income, your class, your caste, your everything. And there's less of an expectation that the boy that you're going to get married to the boy and that the boy could take care of you. In the economy of America in the 1980s and the 1990s. Look at the movies. You get the graduate. Who has a young man. Graduating from college. Who has sex with an older woman. You get Manhattan. Woody Allen as the writer. Has relationship with what are essentially a barely legal girl. And people are like yeah okay that's cool. A little weird but it's alright. You get the ice storm in 1996 about absent parents. And 1970s key parties. Which the parents are obsessed with themselves. Their the kids are going through all these crises. And they don't care. They're like they, they're just not there. You get Revenge of the Nerds in 1984. Which is college is not education. But it's the objectification of women. With lots and lots and lots of alcohol. And then you got kids in 1995, which is New York City teens wandering the streets, having sex, spreading AIDS, boys ruining girls' lives. And there's no parents in that movie. These kids are going on in their lives and there's no parental supervision at all. So it tells you just how, how, how Matthew McConaughey 
and dazed and confused. He's 25, and he says, you know what I like about high school girls? I get older, and they stay the same age. He's a 25-year-old guy who likes to have sex with teenage girls because he's cool only to teenage girls. He's got a cool car. He's got that mustache. He's Matthew McConaughey. But in the rest of society, he's a loser. And it's this idea that, hey, that's cool, man. The girls want to have sex, and the guy is there, and hey. And it's this laissez-faire attitude. But it's disastrous. for by, by the 1990s, it's disastrous. It's The girls are better than Matthew McConaughey. It's no longer the boys' club. We get a song by Genesis, Land of Confusion, 1986, which is Europe is in trouble. It's a European perspective, and the USS and the USSR are crazy. Um, and the video ends with Reagan nuclearing the world and laughing about it. But the 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 chorus is: "There's too many men. There's too many people making too many problems, and there's not much love to go around. Can't you see? This is a land of confusion." You know, oh, Superman, where are you now when everything's gone wrong somehow? This is a British version of the Cold War. The men of steel, men of power, are losing control by the hour. By the 1980s, the USSR's, the Soviet Union's economic system was collapsing. It was no longer paying for itself. The new leader, the, the first of a post-World War II generation, Gorbachev, Attempted to liberalize the economics by liberalizing the politics. This is 1980s. This is Glasnost. This is Perestroika. And what that led to was the collapse of the entire system as people demanded to vote for other parties. Like, he wanted to liberalize the economics. So what the first thing he did was liberalize the politics. And what people then did was say, great, I want to vote for people other than the communists. Which is a problem in the dictatorship, the Stalinist dictatorship system. It's also a problem in communism because there's not supposed to be government in communism. So in Marxism, I should say. And so what happens is the whole system begins to collapse. The Europe, the, the Eastern European countries want to vote to be not part of the Soviet Union's empire anymore. They want decolonization, de-imperialism. And so Gorbachev is faced with the with the either hold it by force with the military that's just been battered by a defeat in Afghanistan. It doesn't really want to occupy East Germany, much less Poland. And so what happens is the East, Soviet Union gives up its Eastern European Empire in 1989, and then Russia itself, the Soviet Union, breaks up into 15 successor states in 1991. Soviet Union goes back to being Russia. That's one part, but it also loses the Baltic states. It loses Belarus. It loses the Ukraine. And it loses the stands, the Muslim Central Asian parts of that were part of Russia from like 1700s. Certainly in the 1800s. So this is a trauma for anyone who believed in the USSR system. Or as the economy collapses after 1901, Anyone who was Russian, if you're a Russian national or believed in the Russian nation, the 90s are a trauma. And so what do you get? You get the rise of Putin, promising to restore the economy, mostly by using oil and gas power, and return Russia to a world power. 
And so if you're a Russian nationalist, you don't have to be a communist anymore. You just have to believe that we're not the poorest country. We're not this devastated poor country. We, are, we were second to the United States. We were, we were a superpower. And now we're not. Now we have the economy of Italy. Well, that sucks. And so the end of the Cold War is a humiliation for Russia. It's trauma for Eastern Europeans. East Germany disappeared. Like, that leads to the question, who are we in Germany? And the answer that the West Germans have is, you're our poor cousins that we have to, like, bail out because you suck. Like, that's humiliating. So who are you now? You used to be the leading part of the Warsaw Pact. Like, the East Germans were the best educated, uh, best, most advanced, uh, best paid part of the, of, the, of the Eastern Europeans. And now they're the poor country cousins of Western Germans. The Eastern states are poor. They're underdeveloped. So they end up exploited by Western capitalism. These companies flood in and say, we will give you jobs. And we'll pay you less than we paid in Germany, in Britain, in France. There's civil wars in Yugoslavia as ethnic tensions break up the country into Croatia and Serbia and Slovenia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. But there's genocide that happens throughout the 90s. There's the trauma and the panic of we're free of the USSR, but will Russia ever really let us go? That's the Ukraine, which is currently, what, 25%, 30% of it is occupied by the Russian army. And the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, that had been part of the Russian Empire since 1721. They took it from the Swedes and broke free in after the First World War and then got reabsorbed in the 20s, 30s, or 40s. And then there's the great question of, was it all worth it? We just ended up kind of where we began. What was the damage to the people who lived through it? And no one's really calculated that. There's a song by Rush on the Roll the Bones album called Heresy that views the Cold War as a waste of time, of lives, of money, and energy. All around that dull gray world from Moscow to Berlin, Eastern Europe, people storm the barricades, the walls go crumbling, tumbling in. The counter-revolution, people smiling through their tears. This is the videos of people breaking down the Berlin Wall. Who can give them back their lives and all those wasted years? All around the dull gray world of ideology, people storm the marketplace and buy up fantasy. The counter-revolution at the counter of, the st of a store, people buy the things they want and borrow for a little more. That's capitalism. Buy the things they want and borrow for a little more. But do we have to be forgiving at last? What else can we do? Do we have to say goodbye to the past? Yes, I guess we do. But that, we live through this. I ducked under tables. I hid worrying about nuclear war in bomb shelters. And now I have to just forget that that all happened? Like we just have to move on? That's a fair question. What does it mean? And I'm a New Yorker. I'm an American. Like, I am not in Berlin, whose city was divided. I'm not a European. 
who was threatened with nuclear war. With the Russians, like when people, when Americans wrote books like, like, um, oh, what's his name in the 80s who wrote World Hunt for October? Every time they wrote a book, Europe was always getting invaded, which means European children were being murdered. European women were being raped. Uh, European cities were being burned to the ground. All the fear and suffering, all a big mistake. All those wasted years, who will pay? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. We just kind of pretend it didn't happen. In the 1990s, we got a book, and it's, it's one book in a series that came out called The End of History and the Last Man by a, a sociologist named Francis Fukuyama. Uh, I, I had to do a report on this in, in graduate school. Imagine tell, telling a bunch of uh, history PhDs that uh, it's the end of history. We don't, we don't really need a job anymore. But um, it's not the end of history as history, meaning past events. It's the idea that history, it's a, it's a Hegelian idea. It's the idea from a German philosopher, Hegel, that every, it's evolution. Everything is moving towards something. But see, if everything is evolving, sooner or later, the philosophy goes, sooner or later, it has to reach perfection. It has to reach an end of evolution. Right? Like, there has to be a time, if there is an unmoved mover who starts the universe moving, there has to be an unevolved, evolved something. Something where evolution has reached its pinnacle. It could be the shark. I don't know. Sharks haven't evolved very much in millions of years. They're like, the, in Jaws, it tells you they're the pinnacle of evolution in the ocean. They're like a perfect eating machine. They, all they do, this is a whole scene, all they do is swim and eat and make little sharks. And we murder them by the hundreds of millions, which is only going to destroy the ocean. But the idea is society has to eventually reach a place where it's the perfect society. And for Francis Fukuyama, that was democratic capitalism. That was capitalism between Scandinavian socialism, a social welfare socialism, and American capitalism. American kind of regulated welfare state capitalism. Like the center left to the center right. Democratic capitalism won. Fascism had lost. So goodbye to racist militarism and genocide. Communism had lost. And even though communism wasn't Marx, it was this dictatorship that had lost. So goodbye to one-party state dictatorships. Dictators will eventually go away. And in the 90s, they did because they won't have support from allies. There'll be no one paying them. So they can't really go on on their own. Now, there's some regimes, like the Iranian regime, which will continue because they have this unlimited amount of oil, and the West needs oil. So it's, it's an economic support, but not necessarily the political allies. And the idea is the world will be somewhere between Scandinavian redistributive socialism, the center-left, and the American stock private market capitalism, the center-right. And so basically, somewhere along the way of Adam Smith, John Locke, John and Harriet Stuart Mills won. Congratulations. So it's only a matter of time before everyone becomes Western European Americans. 
Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians. Like, everyone will become that. Congratulations. That's not exactly what happened. What few saw, what Francis Fukuyama did not see, but few saw, was the continuation of militant Islam from the 1970s. Militant Islam did not just become. It was an invention and a, a evolution from the 40s through the 70s when it really becomes kind of what we think of as terrorism, blowing up planes and shooting up um, airports. and Few saw that that would continue in, in, by, by non-state actors. B, few saw that the ability of the Communist Party in China to maintain power. The idea was what would happen in the Soviet Union would happen in China, that economics would make people wealthier, the wealthier people would demand a say, and the Chinese party would have to become more democratic. They raised 800 million people out of poverty, the Chinese Communist Party. They didn't foresee that, that the Chinese Communist Party would actually make China wealthy. It hadn't made the Soviet Union wealthy, so the idea was why would it make China wealthy? And it did. And then C, the success of white supremacy and neo-fascist groups in America and in Europe. Like there's a new racism, there's a new fascism, and it's built around a declining birth rate because as women get more education and start building careers, they have less children, they invest more money in less children, so there's less, literally less white people in the country. And so there's this worry of a white demographic collapse that America will become a brown slash black place. California already is. It's a majority minority state. Um, Texas might be as well. Um, that there's more minorities than, than Caucasian whites. And there's this conservative reaction of the, of the far right to it. Of white supremacy of neo-fascism to create a new history, and that new history is racist. So we have A, is militant Islam, which is very, very conservative. We've got C, white supremacy, very, very conservative. And then we've got the Chinese Communist Party, which is, in theory, supposed to be liberal, but it could be also conservative. But it's, it's communism is liberal. But the Chinese Communist Party isn't very liberal, so I don't know how you want to define B. But few saw that. Few saw that democratic capitalism wouldn't lose. We're not losing so much, but it's taking these steps back. 9-11 happened with militant Islam, which, which gave birth to a militarism in America. Um, the financial... The, the, the crises of the tech bubble, then the, then the mortgage crisis, and now the pandemic crisis has constantly hit the Western uh, economies so that it's that millennials are not richer than their parents. They won't be richer than their parents. And Zs and or alphas are in even worse positions. There's the joke among boom boomers. Oh, your your kid is your kid is living in your basement. Well, there's no job. There's no and if there is a job, 
They can't afford the $400,000 to buy a house. You know? When I was in college, I rented an apartment for 400 bucks a month. It was small. It was a one bedroom. It was 400 bucks a month. The average cost of a one bedroom in Camden today is $900. Housing has gotten much more expensive since the 70s. And so there's this worry about money. There's this generational worry. There's this, it doesn't keep getting, it didn't, it stopped getting better. Now, I would make the argument that that's, and we will talk about this later, that since 1980, a lot of the money goes to Jeff Bezos, goes to the top, to the top, not only top 1%, but a top one-tenth of 1%. That there's plenty of money in the world. It's just in too few hands. And if we went back to the 60s or the 50s with large redistribution, there'd be less of this fighting for the scraps. But that's me. Anyway, so we're ending on a sad note. So we're going to end with puppies because you can't be sad when you're reading puppies because 9-11 is always sad and um, puppies are not sad. So here are our puppies. Happy, happy puppies. Thank you. I'm sorry. That's how we had to end. That the world is getting worse, and it is. It's since 1995, the world is getting worse. Like, there was a lot of, when Francis Fukuyama's book came out, there was optimism that the Cold War was over, and now we could finally, finally live our lives without this burden. And what it did was it just changed the, changed the kind of conflicts we had. It just changed the nature of conflicts. Conflicts are much smaller now. But they're also more numerous and they're much more cultural. So like we talk about partisan, oh, Republicans and Democrats hate each other. Conservatives and liberals hate each other. Well, that's because they don't have the unit. They don't have the threat of the Soviet Union forcing them to live together, which is what they did in the 60s. They had to compromise. Why? Because the Soviet Union might win and you couldn't let that happen. So you had to find common ground. Now you don't have to. The United States isn't going anywhere. So now you fight with each other. So our Cold War is a cultural war. It's a belief war. And so we need puppies. So take care. Be safe. I'm sorry. But enjoy the puppies. Puppies!